I'm gonna put my other hand up now. Don't you fucking shoot me, Raymond. Welcome to True Detective Weekly on the Idle Thumbs Network. I'm Chris Remo. And I'm Sean Vanneman. This week, we're discussing the sixth episode of the second season of True Detective Church in Ruins. This episode, as always, was written by Nick Pizzolatto, and this week is directed by Miguel uh, Sapochnik, who has some experience at HBO having directed like four episodes of Game of Thrones back okay. in 2011. Um, Seems to be a common situation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Jake is out this week. He's just scheduling things. He'll be back next week. He's very busy scheduling things. <laughs> his book, his, his side schedule is executive assistant schedule, yeah, yeah. to many CEOs. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did you think of the episode, Chris? So I have a lot of thoughts about this episode, um, as I imagine you do. I th- yeah. I would think this was, this was a, it felt like a, an assertive episode to me. Um, at least that was my take. This was the episode that for me, as if, as though there were any doubt about this and, and there really wasn't, I think we all have agreed on this, but this is the episode more than any other that really tells me who is directing tr- an episode of true detective really, really matters. And the fact that there is not one director for this season is, it is the factor more than mm-hmm. any other that that distinguishes it from the first season. And I think I found the direction of this episode, particularly sort of the last third, the, the whole um, kind of infiltration sequence mm-hmm. of the like crazy eyes wide shut party. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess not really eyes wide shut party, but you know, sex party <laughs> Yeah, um, to be fascinating and weird. And unlike anything else in the second season of true detective. And I really, really liked it. Mm-hmm. And it made me, desperately wish that the whole that this whole season season two um had been under the director's eye of a strong single voice like what resulted in that in that whole sequence yeah it's funny because i've it's we've kind of watched this show evolve from whatever you describe season one as this very sort of Mm -hmm. cohesive uh visual piece into what a lot of good tv kind of looks like now right you know mm-hmm. what i mean like i, agree. I don't know if you watch like the americans or I you love, love the americans. i love the yeah, americans. we should do an americans podcast yeah, I, think, yeah. I actually i actually think the americans has uh not to just like throw a wrench into your comparison right. but i think the americans is like a cut above kind of standard well, it, good tv i agree but it has just sort of the look now of this is what good adult okay. television looks like it has prestige drama look. yeah and yeah. You know, House of Cards kind of yeah, drifts in and out of that, yeah. you know, uh-huh. and that's fine. But I think it took a while to just, like I said, make peace with that just being the way it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I totally agree with you. There were still some moments. I mean, this is kind of like a broken record at this stage with me on this podcast. There were still some moments, even in the section that you described the um, how the raid on the mm-hmm. like on the party mm-hmm. that kind of pulled me out in that it felt like being on a really great date. And then the person just says something really like just one sentence. Can you, can you like identify? Just, yeah. yeah. So it's kind of, we're starting at the end of the episode, right. obviously, but, but I think that's the most interesting right. component of the episode. So Annie is, uh, drugged and moving through mm-hmm. this space. This mm-hmm. basically this like sexual assault house of horrors right. <laughs> is the only way to yeah. describe yeah, yeah, it yeah. it is a haunted house yeah. sequence um and i love i mean i thought that was really 
interesting and smart and mm-hmm. sort of like well executed the idea of a true haunted house yeah this house of horrors right but it is populated by ghouls yeah by ghoulish it is men. ghoul is quite <laughs> ghoulish um ghoul girls and ghouls yeah um and she's having what we now realize are mm-hmm. flashbacks right. to a sexual assault of her youth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And at first, it was so disturbing, the mm-hmm. face that she sees in right. the crowd. Right. And so it was almost like emotionally um, overcoming that I was like, oh. It, it, it almost reminded me, I, it didn't remind me of this at the time. It reminds me of it now in retrospect of like the way that Bob, the character from Twin Peaks, is shot by I guess you haven't seen Twin Peaks, but like Peaks. The, yeah. there's a very iconic character mm-hmm. in that show who is almost always shot like front and center, face into the frame, long scraggly hair, like intended to be a a, a face that you only associate with like trauma and mm-hmm. and like terror. And it this in retrospect reminds me of, of the way that was shot. And I thought that was the the first shot of like the rapist, I guess, of that man. And the way it's integrated into the direction of the scene and the way it, it cuts to it and flows into your consciousness. Because you're sitting there just absorbing her. Well, and the She's way that so it big in frame and you're sitting there just being going, okay, yeah, well, my God, what's going to happen to her? What's going to happen to her? And then this thing overcomes you in a way that feels so right for what you're supposed to feel in the moment. Well, and her memories even are as though they were shot on like soup, faded Super 8 film. Right. And I was okay with that stuff. It mm-hmm. was when her memory – like. I thought her memories like jumped the line of being a window into her consciousness and a director painting a cliche scene. So like when you, for, There's a for shot. instance, you mean when the guy's face is like replaced with that was the fine. rapist face. You're fine with that. That okay. was totally fine. Cause mm-hmm. that felt like we're like sharing this consciousness with mm-hmm. this character and okay. building character empathy. And like, Oh my, like I was right there with it. Uh-huh. And then I got it. I was like, oh my God, like it keeps, it goes further and further and further and that's totally fine. But there's a shot of just this big man walking with this little girl into like a van from, oh, right. shot from behind her memory, right? Shot from behind. Yeah. But like, you don't, you don't have, you don't remember moments like that. You don't remember moments from the distant third person like that. So aside from the, like, aside from the sort of merit, of, merit yeah. of that as like a scene, mm-hmm. I think you do sometimes see people who suffer traumatic experiences talk about almost feeling out of body or feeling removed from themselves and kind of mm-hmm. like as they as their conscious experience of the thing is subsumed by like the effect of the trauma they kind of leave and witness it almost like in a detached state yeah but, uh, so, but I, I mean i'm, I did, I'm just, not i'm not claiming that you this, know what i mean it just felt like i'm looking for those things now it feels like sure. where i'm like almost like nitpicking sure. of like Oh, come on. Do we sure, have to? Can't, sure. can't we just? It was so um, good a second ago. Like, don't just. Okay. Yeah. So that's know. fair. So I want to pull back a bit and talk about this whole sequence because I, because I really did think it was a really, it, it was a very strong vision of, of how to portray this sequence in a way that was, I've never seen on television, certainly not modern television, not any television. And the reason I'm saying that specifically is because of the choice of soundtrack, which was totally mind blowing to me. The soundtrack it, was just. The soundtrack yeah, was strings pretty much. Yeah, right? it was yeah. basically as though they like brought back Bernard Herman and ha- and said, "Oh, we're making a new Hitchcock movie. Just like score that." Yeah. As though it was 1962. And and it was amazing to me. It really felt like an old Hollywood s- sort of 
um, psycho thriller drama. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it was exactly the kind of music that you that you would associate with that era and that period of sort of dramatic film about, um, you know, very tense dramatic film. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I just I've never seen that on television before. I mean, even in modern film, it's unusual because it would be seen as a throwback and it being contrasted with, as you say, a very kind of modern television visual style was just fascinating to me because mm-hmm. that's the the modern television visual style is almost exclusively in soundtrack associated with like like that kind yeah, of right. modern synthy drums, lots of percussion, you know, it just so- it sounds like the way modern production sounds almost you know, 99% of the time. And so to mix it to sort of go into there with this really like classical film style. I don't mean classical in the like classical music sense, but in the like classical era of mm-hmm. Hollywood um, was just an incredible and very interesting choice to me. And just the, the in part, because that's also, you have to, you know, I, I was thinking about it. Like, this is just, I wonder whose call that was. I mean, I imagine it was, the director, but that's the kind of choice that requires some lead time. And it's like, okay, well, we've got to, we've got to actually write this thing and, and, mm-hmm. you know, like generate this music that is totally out of character with the music for the series so far. And it just, it, it made the whole thing feel like a, like a self-contained experience to me. I'm like, oh my God, I want the show that's, I want the, sh- yeah. the whole show that's like this. That would be overwhelming. It would be intense. Well, the show's themes and setting and sort of like, where the show comes from the narrative structure of the show is in that mode you know it feels like we've talked a lot about you know the feeling of old uh like that's true you're you're right about that of that sort of new like old hollywood mode Mm -hmm. um which only served from my like in my opinion to make that feel like even a smarter choice (laughs) you know what i mean it's like oh that all fits yeah i didn't even think about that Um, as much but yeah because it and the house that they shoot it in, that's sort of like Dutch inspired, oh, yeah. uh-huh. you know, Hollywood like, Hills, like, Hollywood Hills yeah. sort mm-hmm. of yep. sort of vibe. I love the choice of that house and that setting mm-hmm. and that place. Mm-hmm. And I've sort of made peace with like, I've not even made peace. I'm completely bought in and accepting and interested in the way the show uses California as a place. Sure. Very just however, even mm-hmm. The, it opens in Guerneville, supposedly. Is right. that's where that 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 hut is that has right. the, like the bloody right, right, whatever right. Yeah. barn? Um, I'm bought into that now, completely. Mm-hmm. I really, I think this. I think the the location choices are really evocative and feel uh, transportative in a way that mm-hmm. I I really like now. Like I'm totally bought into that. Cool. I still have a lot of my same criticisms of the show. But I'm enjoying watching it. Like, yeah, I'm to the point where I just I don't think I'm as big a boosters as you and your fiance. <laughs> but um, I mean, but uh, I'm not a booster per se. I just feel like you know, I'm you trying. You guys do really enjoy it, though. It seems like part of it is that it's it feels to me like such a different show from episode to episode mm-hmm. that each episode I just have to like figure out the framework. <laughs> like mm-hmm. every time I watch this show, I'm like, oh, okay, that's what this episode is. Right. Let's talk about that. But uh, but it's we finished. Six episodes so far. We're at the 75% mark. We're at the 75% mark. We've got two left. It's pretty easy to see. Uh, I'm not going to make any predictions because I hate that mm-hmm. shit. But uh, you can imagine how from this point when, you know, they've they've 
they're sort of in a pseudo official capacity mm-hmm. at this point. Like they've had multiple crazy like things come to, coming to a head. Um, both sides, I guess, because you have the investigation and you have Frank and his mm-hmm. his stuff has has kind of reached a level of um, understanding also to be sort of torpedoed. Um, and so we've got two episodes. His left. conflicts on a rolling boil at this stage. That's true. Yeah. That's, like, that's true. Yeah. You're, you're right. <laughs> um, we got two episodes left, and it's pretty easy to imagine that coming to a, a pretty like pyrotechnic end, or at least like tying the stuff together in a relatively um, satisfying way. Right. What's funny about it is is how much how few of the threads that I expected to be what this show was about to be super present. You oh, know, I like completely, the, I was just going to say that I completely yeah. agree. You know, I'm, when you there's think no about, sort of who's the killer anymore, right? That's and, gone. And in, in That's the, not what this is shows. About. Yeah. And early in the season, you know, the shots of the bird mask, both alone and then on the guy's face and just the way that, that the sort of shadowy approach to the almost like Kabbalistic, you know, way that these killings were carried out you that especially in the context of the previous season you'd really think that mm-hmm. would be what the meat of of the a lot of the tone would be but it's totally not at well, both all. the show <laughs> and the characters are complete for three almost four episodes are completely concerned about who is the killer the show is completely concerned now about the stuff we saw last night mm-hmm. that those people mm-hmm. in that and that and that makes sense to me, given the context here. Like, I can totally understand why these investigators, and honestly, me as a viewer, mm-hmm. are more interested in the weird, kind of corrupt political landscape that is the kind of fertile, disgusting ground for those murders to grow. Mm-hmm. That like makes total sense to me. Um, but it is it is odd given where the how the series opened. Well, it's know? also a really odd choice for such a limited. S- when you only have eight episodes, you know, something like House of Cards can dabble in really, or Game of Thrones even, can dabble in incredibly complex conspiracy and um, collusion because it's just going to keep teasing it out and teasing it out. And that stuff, f- corruption by its very nature is damaging the longer it's, it festers mm-hmm. and spreads. Well, yeah. And, on, and, and I know that we're not drawing a lot of season one comparisons at this point. You know, I don't want to go too deep into it. But season one basically just – really in terms of actual screen time and like discussion time relative to the whole season, it brought up the sort of underlying corruption. Mm-hmm. And then basically as soon as we got like a hint of of its scope, that was it, over. Mm-hmm. You know, season was over. So so it, it, it it's interesting to see how Pizzolatto sort of – he it must be a preoccupation for him. You know, this right. notion of like – corruption just serving as an underpinning it it feels like he doesn't even know how to make a story like this that isn't like he's like well of course there's some like terrible structure behind it like propping it up like shroud could it you know ensconce this entire situation there has to be this can't just be yeah yeah Um, and i think that's a great i mean i think that's a really like uh valuable and smart theme to his work mm -hmm. the sort of not just the poison tree but what environment allows it to grow um, so I think that's interesting. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, do you want to, um, step back and talk more about the, maybe the stuff earlier in the episode? Yeah. I mean, Oh, actually, before we leave that, how about, <laughs> I don't have like a point here. How about that? Chekhov's knife came into full force. Full this, fucking this finally. Like finally. in the most overt way, because right before she leaves for the party, she's just, pra- she's just, just knifing, knifing up her shit out of a wooden guy, her wooden and like 
lead yeah. man stabber. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. With her uh, Ikea pegboard of various knives. Right. I want to know about that. I don't, I'm not going to have the time to go digging around to see if that's a real thing, but her target. Right. That is a mix of like hard wood and like soft metal. I was so interested in because that feels like not a fun thing to practice stabbing. Right. It's metal. You know, yeah. I want to know, is that a thing for yeah, this sort of, yeah, yeah. there's like knife self-defense is a thing. I right. went and like researched it a uh-huh. couple weeks ago to see all uh-huh. about it. And there's the DVDs you can buy. There's some fucking intense stuff yeah. <laughs> in that realm. Well, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, I want to know if that's, fictionalized or if that's like oh actually we found this old thing because so and so um anyway yeah i love oh about that my favorite um sort of character moment in that second half surrounding all of um the assault on the house and annie's house of horrors Mm -hmm. was she gets into the car and she's in a daze she's sort of like coming down she's like in this adrenaline fog and she kind of is looking at herself and she goes, I think I killed a guy. Yeah. And that moment was so well delivered. Yeah. And it's exactly what I wanted to hear from her because she's been pre- preparing and pretending to kill a guy every day of her life. Yeah. And then she does. Yeah. Who's essentially the same, who embodies the same spirit of her uh, attacker mm-hmm. from her right. youth. And then it could have just been so trite. It could have just been her staring out the window. It could have been her being like, you know, like it's not enough. could have had all these moments. And it was just this very human moment of, I was being attacked. I was high. I was, Mm -hmm. all these things were happening. And I think I killed a guy. Yeah. And I thought it was so great. I thought it was was such a really well produced moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I really enjoyed that. That one second. Um, sorry. Followed by, um, Ray just like, drifting out oh drifting <laughs> as like, like the electric drift, guitar yeah. kicks in and there's a red moon full red moon what a straight that couple... was a weird end that the electric guitar ending with a I giant know. moon i was like where's justin lens back yeah <laughs> yeah there were actually there were a couple moments like that in the episode both around ray because he also like here's the thing we can talk about mm-hmm. uh, when he goes into his like borderline suicidal bender right you know um cocaine and and whiskey and beer and just you know exercise um <laughs> exercise well, yeah. you know i mean i assume, <laughs> do some pull-ups at the point he did that i assumed he was trying to just overtax his heart that's what i assumed was happening you know okay. he did all those lines you know was, was totally blitzed mm-hmm. and I, th- I thought he was just like anyway here we go i'm just i'm just i don't know the- if it, i didn't read the intentionality in it i read the just sort of Maybe not explicit intentionality, out, but like, just I gotta, yeah. just gotta bro it out. I'm just sure. gotta go crazy. Yeah, gotta get yeah. a pump. Yeah, I gotta smash these planes. Yeah. Remind me of a kid. Uh, anyway, that when that started, it also like rock and roll music kicked in, and it was all. Yeah. And well, he I, puts that on. He puts the CD in. Right, I know, yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. So it's a little bit it's less yeah, yeah. outrageous. Uh-huh. But um, I was still kind of iffy on that, and it it kind of redeemed it for me with the whole conversation he had with his ex wife. Oh, it's perfect. At, at the end, because I thought, like, one of the things, you know, you mentioned last week, appreciating Colin Farrell's performance so much. And I have to say, his just unbearable desire to have a relationship with his kind of son is just, I mean, it's heartbreak. It is impossible to take because he wants it so badly. And the kid is so sort of 
just does not know. The kid has no idea what to do with it. Yeah, the kid feels Absolutely. like on an alien planet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's got this guy who's constantly like, you want to build some things? You want to watch some TV? That TV show sucks. Why do you want to watch that? I mean, no, let's watch it. And you're like, the, the kid just doesn't, cannot, you cannot deal with, with, with it in the slightest. And Ray's just pain at that mm-hmm. is so palpable and so present. And that, that kind of brought me back from the sort of like, crazy land of like rock and roll bender Mm -hmm. i Um, thought that entire arc with him in this episode was really really great i did i did too i i mean colin farrell i really just can't say enough good things about him in this series Mm -hmm. i mean he better be nominated for an emmy (laughs) at one point because it's really the way he slides in between these modes and his rage and then come down and then his his attempt at honor and then his rage and then yeah. his sort of just pure just sad dissatisfaction with the way his life has turned out is so wonderfully mm-hmm. being portrayed mm-hmm. so good um yeah i when he's on the phone with his wife just saying please don't tell him and having just literally exercised his demons in some right. sense, like right. yeah, not yeah. exercised, well, exor- <laughs> exorcised yeah. through exercise. Yeah, exactly. I don't know if they're gone, but um, it did kind of feel like a chapter is closed for him a little bit, but maybe not. It'll be interesting to see if, how much he comes back around, what his character is like next week. Yeah. I'm really sort G- of interested. Given, given that we're so close to the end of the series, I would be totally pleased with that as an ending for that arc mm-hmm. of his life. I mean, I, I don't know what they're going to do. But that felt to me really like almost almost heroic, not in the sense that like he's an admirable person, <laughs> but you know just just in that one little moment, his trying to come to terms with this and like get some degree of reassurance, even if it's kind of meaningless, mm-hmm. you know, but just like even if I never see this kid again i i I just want him to be under this comfortable illusion right. a, you know in a way that's not going to make things worse for him, and like that you know there's something. Well, it feels like for the first time he's sort of made the right choice. <laughs> yeah, just right, get yeah. out of this kid's life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let it like get out of like move on, basically. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, it's nice when a character who you know isn't going to ever have a happy ending mm-hmm. kind of makes one little growth step like that. That's always really I like. Yeah, I, don't know, I find that to be satisfying in a show. Yeah. In his scene, the opening scene with Frank and Ray working all the way backwards was mm-hmm. that was really right. excellent as well. You know, man, speaking of um, speaking of old Hollywood, speaking of film noir, speaking of all that, that the shot of Jordan like slinking into the room with the revolver, with the revolver like with a gun after it's over, like in the sort of nightgown, uh, just, you know, revealing uh-huh. here was the here was the sort of ace in the hole the whole time. Like right. that was the most film noir shit this show has had to date. Right. <laughs> I mean, because she's like she looks like she just woke up maybe or, mm-hmm. or had relatively recently. I mean, she's obviously on guard but like that that mm. that composition was just so that it was so like of that world it was the first time in the show that i they took a moment and split it between two episodes and then a tiny piece of information from the previous episode had temporal sense mm. in the opening so like because he tells colin farrell i'm alone mm-hmm. after we had seen him in bed with jordan before and um i liked that a lot. I thought mm-hmm. that was really well done. Mm-hmm. Um, what was I going to say? Uh, uh, Jordan and the gun. But yeah, I uh, just 
I think Vince Vaughn was really great in this episode as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we feels like we, he's gonna cry in a way that is really honest and yeah. real. Yeah, it's interesting. And it's because interesting, a lot yeah. of I feel like a lot of times he's given the sort of clumsiest stuff to actually say. Mm-hmm. You know, like I and this I, I feel that a lot of that stuff at the beginning was sort of no exception for me. Um, there are sometimes he just feels like a little bit overwritten to me. Like the you know the sentences are a little bit too yeah. composed. Uh, but he, the most articulate man in the show, right? <laughs> right the most right. articulate mobster in Hollywood. Yeah. But, yeah. uh, but his, but his face kind of ties it together generally. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that was also true for me. Speaking of Frank and speaking of Frank being slightly overwritten in the scene with Stan's kid. Oh man. Yeah. Which I really, really liked despite me too. that, you know, I, me too. you know, it definitely felt like he had sort of some of this stuff chambered and ready to say, but it also kind of felt authentic to the way that adults sometimes try and like talk up to children, mm-hmm. you know, and sort of try and like plant the seed in a, in a way that's kind of cheesy. Like when you're a kid, maybe sometimes it seems that way, but because it was clear that something really significant is trying to be imparted mm-hmm. can actually stick with you. Mm-hmm. And I, and I appreciated that. I really, I did too. There's a, the shot at the end. I also, I liked as a capper because what, the way the that they're kid sitting, hugging him? yeah, uh-huh. because the way they're sitting, the kid sort of has to like, kind of his like legs are sort of like sticking out in this really like <laughs> awkward, uncomfortable way that felt really real and honest yeah, to me. Those yeah. moments where you have an emotional collapse, it's not like you're not in this perfect hug bundle that right. people always see the Madonna in and child. Yeah, yeah, it's normally just sort of like a leg is sticking out, and you're just right. like into that person, yeah. and your back is contorted, <laughs> and it just was that, and I thought it was really nice. Yeah, and Ray was just holding him. Um, it's and that was being yeah. cross. I mean, for, for Frank, sorry. Yeah, yeah. that was cross cut with Ray and his just disaster of oh, a situation God. with his son. Who you know, he's the God. What does he say to the kid? Um, where he? Uh, oh yeah, I am your father. You are my son, and I will always love you. And the kid just goes, "Yep, K K," and yeah. chomps on his pizza. Oh, oh. man! It also, I don't know, like it really, really makes me like sad on a profound level when when awkward fat kids are just given shit food and coca-cola on television and i know that's all part it's like it's such a good tool to just see how like mm-hmm. this kid no it doesn't know how he doesn't know how to treat his kid he doesn't know what to do right for his kid right so these are the things you do because it's a kid but right. it's also like the things that you shouldn't really just pump yeah. into a kid and the kid just like folding into his food mm-hmm. and into his own world in this really awkward situation was so well done. Yeah. Just the open Cokes on the table, mm-hmm. you know, like, yeah, perfect. No, it's like, totally true. Yeah, it doesn't know. It doesn't realize he's actually poisoning this kid, yeah. with, you know? Yeah. And the, and the, I think the actor who plays the kid is doing a pretty, <laughs> for, for, for as little material as he actually has, mm-hmm. is doing a really good job in the sense of not, overplaying the like ug dad kind yeah, of yeah, thing yeah. like I, you get the sense that this little kid is probably actually a pretty sensitive person who oh, like there's just a million things going on in his yeah tiny like brain. when, when yeah. you know when he his dad he you know ray's like oh i guess you're not into these models anymore he's like well they kill people you know yeah. he's probably that kind of kid who gets upset when like someone kills an insect or something right. where everything is like the intensity of it is amplified for him, but he has no idea how to respond because he's because he is just a child still. He has no idea how to respond with the complexity of an adult just overwhelmed by his own fucked up life and just and which is tied into 
this little tiny human. Right. Um, and I like, I feel like that I, I keep talking. I know I keep talking about this, but I just really, those scenes are just, they just kill me. They, they yeah. really kill me. They're, they're really, 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 they just feel like honest and well, like, yeah. well made. Yeah. Um, so we got, we had a lot from Annie. We had a lot from Paul. We had a lot, from, or no, we did not have a lot from Paul. No, from Woodrow. Yeah. He was really the one character we didn't really get much from this time. No, we, but you know what's funny? He was this like security blanket for me in the tenseness of the, the, the uh, house assault scene uh-huh. because I've just slotted him into like the unkillable warrior role. <laughs> right. So yeah. Yeah. when they're assaulting this house, I'm like, okay. Even if Ray trips and does something stupid, like Woodrow's with him, right. it'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Nobody's going to get mm-hmm. hurt here except mm-hmm. the bad guys. <laughs> also, <laughs> like, like, Woodrow and Volcoro just k- fucking commandoing the shit out of this, like <laughs> tackling guards, like just the whole. It was, yeah, that was Woodrow's a- way better at it, it turns out, yeah, because yeah. Volcoro just beat, the, just beat a guy to death. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, what it, it's just, it just kind of reminded me what an odd show this season. It just like, although right. I guess that being said, I guess in season one they do that that whole like c- assault. It feels more earned in terms of the character backstory here because like Woodrow's like special forces or something. Yeah, that's, tr- that's so true. I'm actually, just sort yeah. of like okay, yeah. yeah. It doesn't feel like like how are these cops so good at this shit? Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's a good point. I didn't really think yeah. about that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, we he was kind of just a he was just the stoic. We got one. We got one moment where he's talking to the uh, the cop who was there for the, way, the yeah. robbery in 1992. Yeah, and he gets the one on the way. That was a kind of an a, a, an odd. I don't know. Odd is the right word, but that was an interesting scene in the sense that it was. It ended up sort of being this sideways whole monologue mm-hmm. about early 90s LA and sort of riots and yeah. and police sort of police to civilians culture and and. I don't know. What did you, did you, I, I, I don't have a lot of fully formed thoughts about this. Did you make anything? That, that? The actor that they cast for that, in that role was really interesting to me. This sort of like, like, like uh, fair skin, but freckly leathered man. Now. Yeah. Pockmarked leather. Yeah. Face. yeah. And just, he was so torn up about having this, had this thing that happened in the nineties where the, I guess the jewelers were murdered and their mm-hmm. kids were hiding right. while it was happening. Right. Um, no, I thought that scene. I was just so, in like, ensorcelled by that guy that I don't really remember the scene that well. Like, I stopped sort of like <laughs> sure. taking mental notes and just sort of watched him talk and mm-hmm. saw how sad he was. Yeah, uh, and just tried to get any sort of plot details out of it. I don't have a lot of thoughts about that scene other okay. than, I mean, this I is mean, kind it of was, what, it was g- it was a it was definitely a well, it was sort of two things. It was one this kind of just reflection on an era, I suppose, of the sort of location in which the show the greater region in which the show is set and also just as an information dump because clearly right. those kids are going to be relevant right clearly this stuff's going to be relevant it's like we're going to go dig them out yeah. of the foster system and see where they landed and yada, yeah yada. and maybe it's the mayor's kids or, or maybe the knows. girl is that girl who got killed the well the girl who got killed was the missing who was the missing yeah, was yeah the missing girl she was the one who, who or maybe, pawn, the girl, who the mis- maybe the girl the stuff who got, that yeah i thought that maybe like the, i meant the girl from the that Annie rescues is maybe that girl. It's kind of my thought, maybe. From the oh right, sorry, she was the missing girl. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. And then the sorry, the one who got killed was the um, she was the one who pawned who. Yeah, like, she was like was, the a patsy yeah, for whoever yeah, yeah, wanted yeah, to get rid of those yeah. diamonds. Sorry, I totally misspoke a second. Yeah, yeah. Apologies. Yeah. Uh, um, anyway, I liked how upset Ray got. Why did you have to kill the girl? 
I mean, not Rick. Frank. Ah, Frank. Gosh, Frank. that's all, all episode with this. Um, yeah. yeah. I guess Frank seems like he's always about to cry, and <laughs> the malevolent characters around him are also starting to notice that and are using his sensitivity <laughs> yeah, to their advantage. You're probably <laughs> it's right really about impressive. That, yeah. yeah, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Um, well, he's, he's been doing a thing for the last several episodes, at, you know, following the realization of the depths of his financial collapse. Mm-hmm. You know, he's just overextending himself. Yeah, he doesn't again, have, I don't think again, he has it in him to and do again, what he used to And do. again, and yeah. he's just, there's a limit even just on the, I would imagine, even just on the level of like enforcement manpower to actually maintain all of these sh- hustles and shakedowns that he's trying mm-hmm. to establish. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, people say this is, there's been some chatter about this being the best episode. I saw it very briefly I, I would, thus far. And I, I would don't mean, know if I would say that, but I thought it was a really like entertaining, like. I, I, I would, I would say this was my favorite episode of the season. Yeah. So far. Yes. I mm-hmm. would say that. And, and a lot of that has to do with just what I felt like were really great directorial touches. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it just made me so conscious of how important that is. Um, cause I think often that gets overlooked on television because we just don't talk about television directors the same way uh-huh. we do about film directors. And this season of, True Detective has really been a reminder to me. Like, yeah, it really, I think, matters who's behind the camera and who's thinking about all that stuff every second of the, of the, you know, what's on screen. After season one, there was that sort of online trope of, like, hashtag True Detective season two. Right. Pairing up yeah. sort of iconoclastic, like, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. odd couple um, pairs. Yeah. And obviously this show uh, did, like, did not latch on to that trope. It said, no, we're going to have basically yeah. three main characters four really yeah including frank um do you think the show would have been better off holding on to that trope i don't think so i i, I think well all else equal i think no right mm-hmm. if if you're saying no other things change in other words like we still have the rotating cast of directors we still have basically the right. plot we got no i think that i think this was a more interesting better way to go mm-hmm. what i do think is interesting and we will i this isn't really the this isn't the t- place and time to talk about this, but there was th- some interesting interviews that came out before this, you know, actually I think before season one started with, um, with Carrie Fukunaga, who was the director of the entirety of season one saying that a lot of the humor of that show was actually came from Woody Harrelson and, um, and, uh, Matthew McConaughey. Matthew McConaughey, especially Woody Harrelson who like inserted a lot of the levity and humor of that of that character relationship uh-huh. that was not on the page, and so it's so it, it feels like to to a large degree it wasn't necessarily it was kind of a luck of the draw thing that was, mm-hmm. that they ended up that the, the sort of the tone of the show ended up changing a little bit just because of who was in it, yeah, and probably that the chances of that happening on this season were just a lot lower in an environment where. You know, again, different director every episode, mm-hmm. like less of that feeling of like shooting a big movie and instead just shooting a bunch of episodes of television. Mm-hmm. Probably no matter what, it was never going to quite have that same vibe. Yeah, I don't think recreating the vibe would have been the way to go. But I do feel like with only two episodes left, it kind of sucks that every episode, one of them gets kicked to the like supporting role. Oh, yeah, sure. And that's sort of the thing that I think is it doesn't feel like a creative choice. It feels like a creative reality. Mm-hmm. It feels like, well, we only have 59 minutes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, I just think it was such an interesting choice and I don't know if it was a good one yeah. to fill eight hours of television with 16 hours of story and character. <laughs> you know, I yeah. mean, that seems like a good idea on like theoretically of like, Oh man, act mm-hmm. like packed. 
I mean, but I think I don't the reality know. is yeah. like sometimes it's been a good idea and sometimes it hasn't. Yeah. You know what I mean? I like I think there are a lot of I think that you get a lot of the thing that is interesting about it is the different pairings of the different characters. I mean, I guess we don't get all the pairings because Frank really only pairs with Ray. Frank but, and Woodrow would be pretty boring. They would be pretty boring. That would be a not good. <laughs> it would how, actually be funny for a minute because would Frank would just be like, to do oh, I don't say. know what your deal is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it would be nothing. And Woodrow would say nothing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Frank and Annie, maybe, maybe a little more, a little more there. But, um, but you know, with the different pairings of the actual three investigators, the three true detectives, and then the truer detective, Frank, mm-hmm. uh, you get interesting combinations and like different kinds of dynamics and interplay that I think really works. But, but it's a totally good point you make about the fact that inevitably each episode, at least one of them is kind of just, no, we just don't have time right now. Yeah. So yeah, you get, there are things that work and things that don't work, I suppose. And it is very different to season one's just very consistently like just a canvas that is essentially uh, maintain, you know, yeah. throughout, throughout. Yeah. Well, when you do the audio lead into this episode, can you include the moment where Frank says, don't you shoot me, Ray, when he's pulling his hands out from under the table? Oh, sure. <laughs> that is my, I loved the delivery of that line. Yeah, it was yeah. so earnest. Yeah. And so like, I'm telling you for the last time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You got it. Uh, you want to do some uh, listener mail here? That sounds great. All right. So, uh, Andy Yingst writes, fatherhood and infertility. Another listener commented on fatherhood, man, fatherhood, by the way, this episode, this was like dads incorporated this episode. This was dads incorporated. True, true dads. Another listener <laughs> commented, TV show. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to outline a more direct parallel between the male leads writes Andy Yingst. Frank's wife can't have children. With fertility free- treatments, he's using his money to solve the problem. Money is also his sole motivation for having kids. He talks about how he wants the child in place to leave the money when he dies. But later on, the motivation switches, and once he doesn't have the money, it becomes a thing he needs to regain to leave a legacy to his child. It's clear to the audience around this point he'd be better off walking away from both parenthood and his quest to regain his wealth. Ray couldn't have children. By approaching Frank, he claimed his wife's child as his own through an act of violence. Violence is also entangled in his relationship with his son. Beating up bullies, beating up reporters to raise money for his lawyer... The violence in his son are required for the other. He tells himself he has to keep doing these things for his son's sake while he has to be a father to his son or else having these things done means he's a horrible person. It's clear to the audience he'd be better off just letting his wife raise the son and walking away from Frank altogether. Well, um, Paul apparently can't have children on his own. He has to take a drug in order to have sex with a woman, which he does in order to prove his masculinity. This need to deny his sexuality is the reason he's intent on marrying his girlfriend and raising this child. The situation seems primed to incite the same kind of cycle Ray and Frank are in. He has to raise the child to prove he's a man, and he'll have to prove he's a man in more extreme ways to convince himself he's fit as a father. It's clear to the audience that this life he's building for himself is a terrible idea. Andy. The show has a really interesting... I don't really know. I mean, I have to really sit down and think about it and tease it all apart. But relationship to masculinity in general, not just fatherhood, mm-hmm. in terms of um, Woodrow needing like Viagra to sleep with his girlfriend. And then all of these just fucking animals in that house mm-hmm. having like bowls of Viagra as like little party <laughs> right. treats so they can yeah. just do their yep. dastardly mm-hmm. shit. Yep. Um, but you know, Colin Farrell, I don't know. It's funny. Cause like, other, like uh, people's masculinity coming into question, I think is sort of an interesting and what it meet, what their relationship with their ability to procreate and have sex mm-hmm. and like 
all of that and then if they're a good character or a bad character i guess everybody in the show is kind of a bad character in some right. sense or as it's all i like that all that stuff is in play i think all that stuff being in play is well, really thoughtful but yeah. i don't really know what it amounts to yet well i think what it amounts to is a, is a, another thing that is sort of a preoccupation on the part of the writer because i think season one as well so much of it is about just the disaster of society's expectations of masculinity mm-hmm. and what and like the havoc it wreaks on men and then also the the like the women and, and just all the people in the orbit of those men right who are have to indirectly suffer Who's by suffer, way yeah. of this just like constant need to establish mm-hmm. and and demonstrate manhood and fatherhood and all of these um expected kind of traits it's so it's definitely a theme. It's a running mm-hmm. theme for sure. Well, in the show, in the season one, like, it felt like McConaughey, and there were other, and like some of the female characters were sex symbols in a way that um, they're not really in season two. Yeah, nobody. Although, like, Woodrow nobody, at nobody first has sort the, of like, is like in the gaze of the of the camera and his right. chiseled body. Yeah, and but his that, sexy girlfriend. But and, the rug is pulled out in a more extreme way from that than in, yeah. than in any. You know. Um, yeah, no, you're, to- you're totally right about that. There's no McConaughey equivalent of attractive, dark, brooding, troubled, stoic, principled man. Yeah. That it could have easily been Colin Farrell. I mean, he could have pulled that off as an actor. And, yeah. Especially and, the, yeah. given the way he looks. Mm-hmm. But I'm kind of I'm glad it didn't happen. Yeah, no, me too. Um, DJ DeWitt, DeWitt writes, Hey thumbs last episode's conversation about the relationship between real events, the audience's knowledge of those events and the audience's appreciation of the story touches on how I've learned to enjoy this season. And I wanted to share my strategy. It surprised me and everyone else to learn how rooted in fact this season has been. I think Sean's right that knowing the truth behind fiction helps you appreciate that fiction more, but I've still felt that audiences appreciate a well-researched story without being aware of the research. This season, clearly well-researched, but also clearly struggling to resonate kind of screws up my theory, but I think I've found a silver lining. We are the true detective. Say what, <laughs> that say was their you, original yeah. uh, hashtag uh, marketing campaign. Oh, man, yeah. Say what you will about <laughs> Nick Pizzolatto, but he's an A-plus student when it comes to homework. As noted on your show, there are copious references to West Coast noir film and fiction. As noted in West Coast media, there's a real-life analog for nearly every plot point. Vinci is Vernon, get Ben Casper is Eric T. Fresh, Californians really did vote on Prop 1A for High Speed Railway, and the powerful man, men's sex called Annie and Paul are uncovering is based on the real-life secret society Bohemian Grove, also set in Guerneville. Remember the shot of the Vinci mayor with President Bush? Yeah, Bush and his father are members of the Bohemian Grove. So is Walter Cronkite, Clint Eastwood, Dwight D. Eisenhower, Dwight D. Eisenhower, Gerald Ford, Henry Kissinger, Ronald Reagan, Theodore Roosevelt, Donald Rumsfeld, and Mark Twain, amongst others. The Manhattan Project was allegedly conceived there. Fun stuff. So even if we aren't compelled to unravel the show's aimless mystery, the expectation that Pizzolatto has set that his writing is well-rooted in fact allows us to enjoy unraveling the mystery of his references. It's, con- it's an excuse to expose ourselves to the actual real-life corruption and violence we should know about. Isn't that all David, David Simon ever hoped for with The Wire? Good on you, Nick. If you want to dig deeper into the real world of True Detective Season 2, I would say the podcast Welcome to Vinci is required listening. It's put out by Southern California Public Radio and has done an amazing job exploring the historical background for each episode. They visit the owner of Ray Valcoro's house. Yes, it's actually right next to the police department. They talk to the journalist who tried to expose Vernon corruption and was subsequently followed around by mafia goons, and they break down the whole railway thing. In short, Frank Semyon's land gamble wouldn't have vested until 10 to 15 years. Should have stuck with the club ownership, Frank. Uh, one of the reasons I like Idle Thumbs is your collective commitment to appro- approaching creative work with optimism and a genuine desire to find interesting perspective. I know we've been a little bummed about this season, so I hope this approach to watching True Detectives help you guys and all my fellow readers. Keep up the great work, and thanks for the laughs and good times. Cheers, DJ. 
Um, P.S. Feist did a video special on the real-life story behind True Detective Season 1. You can probably find written accounts amount to the same, but I would watch the video for the imagery and local flavor. It will clear up those questions we had about accuracy of setting, as well as provide a nice historical base for the Season 1 rewatch. Um, he has a very, very long P.P.S. that I <laughs> maybe I'll hold off on for now. But maybe we'll read in a future segment. But that was really, interesting, <laughs> really interesting email. Thank you, yeah, DJ. That was great. Yeah. Well, uh, on that, you want to wrap this up? Yeah. Thanks for listening to True Detective Weekly. Uh, if you like this, please tell a friend. You can find the podcast on iTunes or at our website, truedetectiveweekly.com. Uh, if you have questions you'd like to send us, please send them to questions at truedetectiveweekly.com. Uh, I'm Sean Bannerman. I'm Chris Remo. I'm Chris Remo. We are often joined by Jake Rodkin in this seat or that seat. And uh, thanks for listening. Thanks, everyone. Talk Bye. to you next week.